This is an ABC podcast. And good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Yes, we've reached the midweek. It's your Wednesday and I'm Aggie Dubol. Thank you so much for your company. What have we got on the show today? Well, there is an ongoing dispute between the Bank of Papua New Guinea and Puma Energy. There is another high-profile official landing into the Pacific and there's human remains that have been undiscovered for nearly 80 years in PNG. For any of our stories, please make sure you head to our website. Just type ABC Pacific Beat in your search engine and feel free to share across all your social media platforms. Thank you for tuning in to our program this morning. I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. First, though, we go to New Caledonia, where all eyes will be on French President Emmanuel Macron, where he delivers a much-anticipated speech this afternoon. Macron is expected to outline the path forward for the territory which has been plagued by bitter political divisions after a controversial referendum that rejected independence from France. Now, that 2021 referendum had been boycotted by the Canuck population, who are now pushing for a say in the territory's future. Jan Kahoot with this report. New Caledonia may be a popular holiday destination, but there's been no rest or relaxation for the French president. Emmanuel Macron started his first day in the French territory early, heading straight to the centre of Numea to greet the population in the Place Birhakim. And there was a traditional welcome from the Canuck Customary Senate and the Canuck Northern Province. But among the display of culture and Canuck tradition, there was also a display of French military might with two jet fighters streaming overhead. Mr. Jean-Pierre Jaouet from the pro-independence Palika Party was among those unimpressed by the display. He's come with ministers, there are also jet fighters, which came for a demonstration. It's almost coming to showcase muscles. We don't know what the President of the Republic will be announcing. But others feel differently. Canuck entrepreneur Guillaume Vama sees Macron's visit as a positive step for the economy. I think the visit by the president is a good thing for the economic state of New Caledonia. Now that he knows New Caledonia, it's good for its development. It's important that he comes and meets the economic actors of New Caledonia. However, he says he hopes the French state is not there just to show off its military muscles. I do hope the state is here for real development and not in the form of just coming here to show Europe and the world that France is in the Pacific. As for Mr. Jaouet and the pro-independence parties, they want independence from France and won't stop until it happens. We don't know what the president wants, but we Canucks, the pro-independence, know what we want. We want the full independence of our country. Until we have that, we will still be here and we will keep claiming our right. That is the accession of the country to independence. 
Three referendums have been held over the Territory's future. The last one in 2021 voted against independence, but it had been boycotted by the Canuck people. The resentment from that referendum is still evident. On the sidelines of the visit, Yaleta believes there's an ulterior motive for Macron's visit. The visit of Mr Macron on the territory proves that France wants to keep New Caledonia in France for its richness that we have here in New Caledonia. They want to keep us for our natural richness. Of course I think New Caledonia will be independent and I wish New Caledonia will be independent. It's my wish, it's my hope and we already live our independence in our tribes and I think that of course one day New Caledonia will be independent. Pro-independence party the Caledonian Union have denounced Macron's presence in the territory. They are urging other parties to boycott the trilateral talks this morning, which are set to include pro-independence, anti-independence parties and the French state. But Mr Jawe says all eyes will be on what the French president says when he delivers his speech this afternoon. If he says he holds to the results of the three referendums, well, I think that will be a declaration of war. But if he says, OK, there have been results, but they've sorted nothing, from there we could pave a way that everyone can be content. Then, yes, that could be a speech that could be heard by pro-independent supporters. And that is Jean-Pierre Jaoué from the pro-independence Palika Party, uh, which is part of the FLNKS coalition. The reporter there was Jan Kahoot. Pacific Beat. The ongoing dispute between the Bank of Papua New Guinea and Puma Energy over foreign exchange has reached a dramatic climax, with the country's head of police stepping in. Police Commissioner David Manning has used his powers, vested to him as the COVID-19 pandemic controller, to issue a directive to force both parties to reach an agreement and for Puma to end fuel rationing around the country. But Paul Barker, director of PNG's Institute of National Affairs, says the move is bizarre and could have negative repercussions on the business community? Well, uh, it's certainly a bizarre situation. It does seem to be stretching uh, the limits of of a power that was specifically designed for a purpose of managing, controlling the pandemic. It certainly uh, is stretching that to be dealing with an issue that relates to power provision. Yes, uh, clearly if fuel supplies are not made available and uh, and power in the main centres around the country is undermined and uh, and fuel is unavailable to Air New Guinea and other airlines, clearly it's a serious situation and that can create an emergency situation. But it's a little hard to sort of imagine that that relates to... Uh, <laughs> the COVID-19 pandemic. For the police commissioner to intervene in such a way, what message do you think does this send to the wider business community in PNG? Yes, it clearly uh, gives a, a pretty negative message for, for businesses that, that the government will use measures that seem to be uh, unrelated, uh, using police powers that really are not there for this sort of purpose. Um, yeah, it, it certainly creates 
a, a an uncomfortable feeling because if you can use it for this, then maybe you can use it for all kinds of other purposes in uh, in enforcing uh, compliance by corporations, um, but also potentially by households and others uh, outside the the conventional precincts of um, the business environment and business law. So yeah, it will send a. I suppose contrary to that, you have the bizarre situation that. Um, that you, you seem to have a government that's unwilling to step in and, uh, and renegotiate an established agreement. So it's, it's almost like, okay, well, government's adhering to agreement, but then using a, um, a rather ad hoc arrangement to try and address the problem and oh, both of its own regulatory authority, the central bank, and of, uh, and of a major corporate operator. So it's a, it, it's a very strange situation. Do you think this is an unnecessary distraction for the police commissioner? As we've seen in recent times, PNG is grappling with a dire law and order situation. Yeah, we have a serious law and order problem all around the country. Um, some provinces, I would say, have actually got better law and order situations than than others, and some are better than they have been in the past. But the law and order problems that were often uh, reported from particularly certain areas in the highlands, especially, um, clearly have extended to many of the coastal provinces, East Sepik, uh, Madang, West New Britain, Milne Bay, uh, which even across to New Ireland, which were hitherto always considered to be very peaceful areas. So one has a situation where law and order issues are escalating. They need to be nipped in the bud. We know that the police are understaffed, but at the same time, uh, and and under-resourced, but at the same time, um, they need to sort of build up their capacities and they need to be able to work better with the communities they need to be able to um, depend on leadership at the community level. Uh, and certainly this is a distraction for the police when they really have to be concentrating on, the, on those particular issues. Uh, Paul Bakert, sorry there, of PNG's Institute of National Affairs, speaking to ABC's Theory Lepani. While Australia's Minister to the Pacific has warned against political interference and disinformation during a speech in the Solomon Islands. Pat Conroy is in the Solomon's capital to mark the 20th anniversary of the Ramsey intervention. This is when Australian troops helped to stabilise the Pacific Island country after years of ethnic violence. In a speech the minister has warned against malign behaviour, although he hasn't said which countries may be responsible. Joining us now for more on this story is ABC reporter in the Solomon Islands, Kristen Rita Almanu-Leong. With that, I say welcome to the show. Good for the morning, Aggie. Thank you so much, Kristen Rita, for joining us. Uh, look, before we even get into the details uh, of the speech, what has Pacific Minister Pat Conroy been doing in Honiara? Uh, Mr. Pat Conroy has been keeping himself really busy um, 
uh, the past few days upon his arrival, he's told us also that this Solomon heat sometimes um, isn't ideal for a suit. Um, but it's his second visit uh, in less than a year. Um, and this 48-hour visit actually concludes um, later today. So he's still got a lot ahead of him uh, before he leaves. Uh, but he's been involved in bilateral meetings with, with his different counterparts um, yesterday. He also um, uh, was part of a, he gave a keynote address at the uh, local university uh, and also had the opportunity to ask and answer um, questions to the uh, students here. And um, later on during, um, during his uh, day yesterday, he hosted a uh, uh, dinner for the graduates from the Australian Award um, Alumni and Aggie, um, what's a, a, a local feast without the roast puaka, or we call it a roast pikpik, and that was surely um, on the tables uh, uh, last night at, uh, uh, when he hosted these graduates. Oh, look, if he just went to Solomon Islands for the feed itself, Chris Narita, I'm sure he's going to make some good decisions <laughs> moving forward. I do want to ask, though, uh, geopolitical competition, right? And China has been very much a key topic of late, especially when Solomon Islands is trying to strengthen its policing relationship with Beijing. I mean, what did Pat Conroy say, if anything, about China? Hmm. He didn't directly or mention um, China in his in his speech, but it's almost safe to say he was referring to China. Um, you know, since Solomon Islands and China established diplomatic ties in 2019, it's becoming um, common for some leaders to use press conferences and keynote addresses in directing um, some part of it to address a third party. And we did hear of that uh, yesterday as well. Um, but Besides that, he, uh, Mr. Conroy, he reinforced the need for two countries, um, Solomon Islands and Australia, to be actively engaged in standing against behaviours um, that undermine uh, the common interests of the two countries, especially against disinformation and political interference, like you, you said earlier, and the imposition of impossible debt um, burdens, Aggie. I'm just, you know, you have said that he did speak about the disinformation and malign activities, but I mean, was there any way that he clearly directed it at China? Mm, you, one can almost, um, you know, infer that it was directed at China. Uh, like I said, you know, it, it, it. Um, he didn't make mention any country, um, or he didn't make mention China, um, but. Mr. Conroy certainly isn't the only one um, uh, who, you know, has been directing um, perhaps some of his points to a third party. You know, last week um, at Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavari's second press conference with the media, he also had a go at accusing some of his country's traditional partners um, for political interference, also not mentioning any names. But um, like I said, after since the establishment of the diplomatic ties, um, it's it's a, it's becoming common for us to um, hear um, these some of these issues or some of these um, responses. Um, in keynote addresses or conferences, and uh, yes, mm. uh, we we can expect more of that, I yeah. suppose. Very interesting. <laughs> I'm wondering, has he actually responded to any questions about whether Australia is like did reduce its aid to the Solomon Islands? 
Uh, well, Mr. Conroy, he said that Australia um, has delivered the budget support that um, has been agreed upon by both Saul's government and um, his government, and that Australia is committed um, to and remains proud and privileged to be the biggest development partner um, for Solomon Islands. Now, a little bit of background, Australia um, will deliver uh, what he says, um, over 170 million Australian dollars. That's 952 um, million Solomon dollars um, for last year as well, sorry, for 2023 this year and 2024. And what uh, Mr. Conroy said is um, there are two key reasons as to why Australia is has increased its budget towards Solomon Islands. The first one is it's in his country's interest for Solomon Islands to develop. And secondly, um, Australians, he says Australians do care because um, um, uh, they care about Solomon Islands. Um, so certainly interesting, Aggie, to see how all this aid that's directed um, um, to Solomon Islands through the um, funding and uh, through other different programs um, and particularly for Prime Minister Sogavara, as he says, that the key priority area for our country is um, development. Mm, thank you for that. Uh, if you've just joined us, we are speaking to ABC reporter in the Solomon Islands, Kristen Rita Almanulionga, on Australia's Pacific Minister, Pat Conroy's visit to the Solomon Islands. I just want to stay with this, uh, you know, when the claims were made about Australia reducing its aid, uh, it being made by Prime Minister Manasit Sogavare. Did Mr Conroy say that Sogavare was wrong? Um, he didn't say um, Sogavari was wrong. Um, rather, he um, sort of highlighted or, or said that um, uh, things could be better um, uh, worked out if both countries continue to engage in dialogues that would be helpful when it comes to uh, budget and um, the key priority areas of Solomon Islands, given that, um, as he says, uh, Solomon Islands government decides on where the funding should go. And like he mentioned to the um, university students yesterday, um, if the Solomon Islands government sees the need for education um, as a priority area, then um, Australia is there to answer that request um, and, and be it in any different, and be it in any different um, sector, um, Aggie. Mm. Uh, I know earlier you mentioned that he will have bilateral meetings and I know he's had one with, of course, the Prime Minister uh, Sogavari. Do you know what was actually said in any of those discussions? Uh, his discussions with Prime Minister Sogavari uh, were mostly focused on um, SOLS and Aussies, um, Australia's economic and security partnerships. And um, what he says, you know, um, um, these discussions were aimed at delivering jobs, um, seeing that uh, jobs, um, you know, security partnership in um, delivering jobs and not really to do with, you know, geopolitics, uh, as well as um, their talks were to do with, you know, uh, trying to build, um, working together to collaborate in building prosperity for the two countries um, and also having meaningful dialogues and people to people links. Um, these were part of some of the discussions. But he also met with the Minister of Police um, to also discuss Australia and Solomon Islands security partnership, particularly the ongoing cooperation through the Solomon Islands International Assistance Forces um, who've been here on the ground since November 2021. Um, that's been uh, high on the agenda as well. And um, 
uh, Prime Minister Sogavari made reassurance to Mr. Conroy that Australia remains its number one security partner of choice. If there's any security gaps or anything that's to be filled, Prime Minister Sogavari uh, told or reassured um, uh, Mr. Conroy yesterday that Australia remains its number one security partner of choice. And Mr. Conroy also told um, um, us, the media yesterday in a doorstop, that he's reassured by what Prime Minister has said, both privately and publicly, Aggie. Nice. Thank you. Uh, I'm wondering, though, you know, in that speech, was there any sort of surprises, maybe anything you didn't actually anticipate? Hmm, that's an interesting one. Uh, well, there weren't any for me, um, Aggie, but, um, you know, today will be a very busy one for Mr. Uh, Pat Conroy, and we can expect um, maybe something, uh, a surprise or something that will come out from today's um, meetings and today's uh, um, program. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, it's going to be a mystery as well for us because <laughs> the media have only been told that we need to wear closed shoes for whatever will happen today. And otherwise, we don't really know what's going to happen. So it already is a surprise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so so is there no plans or do you know of uh, Pat Conroy's plans for today? Um, the media haven't been haven't been told or briefed on what the plan is for today, but we can expect Mr. Pat Conroy to visit Solomon businesses. Um, there's a possibility he could be visiting the Ramsey exhibit um, that's been open for the past weeks. And of course, as you said earlier, he's here to commemorate Ramsey's 20th anniversary. And um, also, he might be also meeting other parliamentarians. You know, this is a small place. Honiara is a small uh, town, people talk. So these are some of the things we might expect him to uh, do today. Otherwise, it's all a mystery and we'll know more later in the day, Aggie. Beautiful. I love your work, Chris Narita. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, Tomas, for having me on the show. No worries. That, of course, is Chris Narita Almanuleong, the ABC's reporter in Solomon Islands. Hey, look, in just a few, we'll be joined by producer Carl Evans with our news wrap. This is Pacific Beat. Join me, Sosefina Formoli, for On The Record, an hour-long deep dive into the music that has made an incredible range of artists from right across the Pacific. We'll discover stories behind songs of inspiration, songs of activism, songs of evolution and songs of pride as we chop it up with Pacifica musicians you already know and love and hopefully some you'll be meeting and falling in love with for the first time. On The Record, Tuesdays at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Hold the front page. That's right, it is time for our news wrap here on Pacific Beat. I'm joined by producer Carl Evans. I'd like to say good morning. How you doing? Good morning, Aggie. Yeah, well, uh, definitely a few stories happening in our Pacific backyard. Uh, first, we start off with uh, Fiji PM Sitiveni Rambuka. Uh, he said he's been forced to delay an imminent trip to China uh, after suffering an untimely injury. What actually happened? Yeah, very uh, untimely indeed, Aggie. It seems he has tripped and injured his head uh, while looking at his mobile phone. Uh, that's what he said anyway on social media when he posted a surreal video to make the announcement. Um, he appeared in front of the camera uh, with a dressing on his head and a business shirt, uh, which was lightly splattered with blood. Uh, he said it happened while he was looking at his phone and walking up a set of stairs. Uh, and he's been told by doctors to uh, to come back to the hospital for a review on Friday, hence uh, forcing him to cancel his visit to China. 
Well, look, I mean, head injury, you've got to be careful though, right? But I'm wondering, has China responded or even offered condolences? <laughs> no, but uh, interestingly, the incident came uh, just hours after China's embassy in Fiji had actually announced Mr. Rumbuka's trip on Twitter. And obviously it comes as China continues to intensify its efforts to build up uh, diplomatic ties uh, within the Pacific. And we also do know that Mr. Rumbuka has had a testy relationship uh, with Beijing after he promised to review and potentially scrap uh, an old police cooperation agreement. Agreement. So, look, uh, this this probably probably won't help things. But if you haven't seen the video, I encourage you uh, to do so. It is it is quite quite a funny one, even unintentionally so. I can only imagine the memes that would come out of this. But of course, let's wish that he does get well very soon. It reminded me of something I would uh, I would say to my mother as I was trying to you know, get a sick day off school or something. You Absolutely. Know? <laughs> I think we've all gone there before, Kyle. Uh, the former Australian government, though, is being criticised for entering a contract with a man suspected of bribing Nauruan officials. What's this about? Yeah, so it's been reported by the nine newspapers that Australia's former Home Affairs Minister, uh, Peter, Peter Dutton, had entered a contract with the man, uh, Moju Bojani, uh, to provide accommodation services for refugees on Nauru back in 2018. That man, however, was under investigation Investigation at the time for bribing foreign public officials uh, in order to obtain advantage an advantage for one of his businesses. Now he was later convicted after pleading guilty in 2020. But according to the article, uh, the Australian Federal Police confirmed they had actually briefed uh, the former Home Affairs Minister just months before uh, he was charged. Uh, and it appears that despite that warning, the department proceeded to enter into a uh, fresh contract with him anyway. Gosh, that's crazy. But I'm wondering, has there been any backlash from, from the new government now? Yeah, not surprisingly, there has. Uh, the ABC has reported that the current Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, uh, he, he wants Mr Dutton to be made to answer for this. Uh, he said the Australian people ultimately deserve any, any, an explanation, uh, especially given it was Australian taxpayers' money uh, that was spent to uh, to enter this contract. And, uh, and yeah, just reiterating that... Uh, this, this happened while Mr Dutton's government was in power uh, prior to um, Anthony Albanese's government uh, taking over. Wow, wow. Uh, we end off with sport, and of course, oh, this is good news, though. Uh, Mansa Moore is back in the top 10 of the Rugby World Rankings. Yeah, for the first time in eight years uh, after that thrilling two-point win uh, over Japan back uh, in the first round of the Pacific Nations Cup on the weekend. So they received uh, 1.43 ranking points for their efforts, and, uh, and that was enough to lift them over George. Georgia and Japan. Uh, Japan, meanwhile, they're, they're actually back in 12th, which is the lowest ranking they've had uh, since November of 2016. But uh, as for Samoa, they've been as low as uh, 17 in the world uh, in recent years. So, yeah, really good to see them climb up the rankings like this. Uh, they're ahead of Fiji, who are 13th, uh, ahead of Tonga, who are, who are 15th. I actually thought Tonga would be a bit lower than that, to be honest. Um, but that may change, obviously, this weekend when Samoa play Tonga uh, in that second round of the Pacific Nations Cup. So, yeah, great stuff for Samoa. Uh, yeah, absolutely for our Pacific Nations. I'm going to feel a little bit torn this week because I'm both Samoan and mm. Tongan, so I don't know who to go for. I'll just, whoever wins. I'll be going for Manu Samoa, just because Christian <laughs> Iliafana used to play for my hometown team, the ACT ah, Brumbies. So there we Always go. had a soft spot for him. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Hey, look, thanks again, Carl, for our news rep. Really appreciate it. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Now, a chance discovery by a Papua New Guinean man working on his land has led to the recovery of the partial remains of 15 Australian World War II soldiers on the Kokoda Track. They were among the 65 Aussie diggers killed and buried at an area known as Templeton's Crossing in 1942 as Japanese forces withdrew along the track. 
As the war drew to an end, the graves were systematically cleared, but it was a difficult job and not all of the remains were moved to the Bomana War Cemetery outside Port Moresby. But in 2018, a local landowner looking to build terraces in the mountainous terrain came across what appeared to be human remains. PNG correspondent Tim Swaston says after years of COVID-related delays, a team from Australia's Unrecovered War Casualties team made it to the site last month and confirmed they were Australian soldiers. It was a pretty extraordinary discovery. Like the area we're talking about at Templeton's Crossing is a really remote area on the Kokoda track. And it basically was the site of a temporary cemetery. Uh, There were several battles fought there in, in late 1942 and 65 Australian soldiers were buried there. But in the later part of the 1940s, their bodies were moved to Bamana War Cemetery. But it turns out that job wasn't completed in full. Just about five years ago, one of the landowners there at Templeton's Crossing was terracing just, you know, around on the property and he made the discovery of human remains. So he then alerted some of the trekking companies that go through the site and they have in turn uh, notified Australian Army's what's called their Unrecovered War Casualties Unit. So they've been planning this trip for quite a considerable amount of time to go and recover the remainder of the the human remains and they've just finally gone about and, and done that and completed that task now. And what exactly had they found? Well, so there were 65 soldiers that were originally buried there at the site and they've dug up the 65 graves and in 15 of those, they've found partial human remains. So the understanding is that 15 of the soldiers weren't exhumed um, in full. Now comes the really tricky part, basically, where they're trying to identify um, what, you know, basically where they are going to be burying these the 15 human remains that they have found. They have relatively good records about the graves there at Templeton's Crossing and which graves that they match back at the Bermuda War Cemetery in Port Moresby, but they still need to go through the, the kind of forensic testing to ensure that they do match. And where possible, they're going to be doing DNA testing and that kind of thing as well to make sure that they basically match the human remains of the appropriate soldiers to make sure that they can be finally and appropriately laid to rest. And do they have an idea of the identities of the remains? Well, it's, it's it, again, a, a bit of a tricky one as well. Like, I mean, they, they have a sense, but they weren't able to reach out to families or do that kind of genealogical work in the lead up to this because they weren't quite sure what they were going to be, what they were going to find. So that's really the the kind of process that's in, in place now. Firstly, was effectively this, this discovery and this archaeological dig and, and now will come the identification. And if and where possible, they'll be reaching out to families to say that we found, you know, more remote of, of your relative who served in World War II. But it's a you know pretty extraordinary dig in, in about you know more than half the graves they did find artifacts and the like. So they've recovered a spoon, a, a partial bayonet, um, they've recovered even a signet ring as well. So there's all sorts of World War II artifacts that they've been able to find. And honestly a pretty extraordinary discovery considering we're talking about a site that is in full view of the main part of the Kokoda Trail that um, you know people people knew that there was of course a, a cemetery there at one point in time at the site, but no one sort of really understood or expected that there were there was still partial human remains there at the site. Do they now think that area is cleared of any remains? 
Yeah, they do. They feel that they've gone through it pretty comprehensively. Um, you know, the expectation, the understanding was that there were 65 sort of burial sites or graves there, and those have all been systematically cleared out. You know, they did basically say that that kind of task, doing it back in the 1940s, would have been extremely difficult. So it's understandable that some of the remains have been left behind. You know, we're talking about a very remote area of the Kokoda track. They wouldn't have had the kind of aerial support that they have had this time around, and it would have been a very difficult job. So this time around, they're, of course, able to chopper in and out on the on those on those stretches of the archaeological dig and and effectively use the kind of resources that we have today to to try and catalog and identify and, and recover the human remains so they're very confident that uh, that at this site they've got them all that being said though there were more than 625 or so Australian soldiers who were killed um, during the uh, during the offensive in World War two on the Kokoda track and they do believe that there are some uh, soldiers who are still missing so uh, there were Work continues, uh, but ultimately, a, a you know, pretty extraordinary find, and one that'll hopefully mean that um, these soldiers are identified soon and, and fully laid to rest. Once they've been identified, will they be buried at Bomana? Yeah, so they'll they'll basically be matched up with the graves that are already there at Bomana. So that's the challenging thing that they've got to do now is match up the remains that they have now with the remains that are at Bamana War Cemetery. So that'll be the tricky and complicated process. I mean, they have suggested to me that they do have relatively good records of of when when the bodies were moved from uh, Templeton's Crossing to Bamana back in the 1940s as to which grave belonged to whom, um, but they've still got to do that testing to try and make sure that they're matching, you know, the right remains with the with the right grave at, at Bamana War Cemetery. So it's uh, it sounds like the easy part of it, i.e. this remote dig has been done and now this um, identification process uh, sounds like a fairly challenging task that they've got ahead of them. Anzac Day dawn ceremonies are always pretty moving at Bomana, but there could be a, an especially moving one next year, possibly. Yeah, precisely. And all of this is really interesting as well in the context that, you know, that unrecovered, um, you know, bodies project, that unrecovered war casualties project was was also involved in the recent discovery of the Montevideo Maru, um, where, you know, hundreds of Australian soldiers who were held in, held as prisoner in, in Rabao, held as prisoners in Rabao were on board when they were torpedoed. Um, so, you know, they were involved in that discovery, which was just earlier this year. There's, of course, this discovery of further bodies. So I think, you know, many people, of course, do go to Papua New Guinea to pay their respects around Anzac Day. And I think that, of course, next year could on could take on some, some extra significance, given that we have further remains of soldiers who served and, and paid the ultimate sacrifice there on the Kokoda track. So it sounds like this, you know, this team's work, it, it's challenging, it's difficult, but as they've put it, it's very important um, work and, and ultimately work that sounds like it never stops. PNG correspondent Tim Swanston speaking there to ABC's Liam Fox. For centuries, Pacific Islanders have been sharing stories across the region. Stories from the Pacific is a weekly program that honours that tradition, allowing you to hear in-depth personal stories from sports people to farmers, artists to teachers, activists to entrepreneurs with one thing in common, their Pacific heritage and a unique and incredible story to tell. Stories from the Pacific, Wednesday mornings at 9.30 PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. 
Welcome back to Pacific Beat. As we head into the Pacific, we are very much a hot spot at the moment with another prominent foreign official visiting. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is set to arrive in Tonga today. It follows the arrival of French leader Emmanuel Macron in New Caledonia and U.S. Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin in PNG. In a discussion with the ABC, Tongan Prime Minister Honourable Huakavami Liko Siausi Sovaleni told Sarah Ferguson the visit will strengthen Tonga's relationship with the U.S. Well, we're very excited, uh, uh, given that uh, the secretary will be arriving, arriving tomorrow. I, I, I do believe that we have a very long relationship with uh, the U.S., given it's over 50 years, uh, and, and we do believe we have something to contribute to our relationship. Uh, not, not just about climate change, but also in terms of... Uh, people-to-people relationship. We have a lot of Tongans in the U.S., so we we have that extra, uh, to say, factors uh, that are of interest to both of us. Is the United States prepared to offer Tonga the same commitments that China did last year, including on climate change, on disaster mitigation, on agriculture? I I, I really don't want to preempt whatever uh, commitment the U.S., uh, may bring to the table, but we, we do have uh, different uh, priorities in terms of discussion with, with some of our partners. We believe that the U.S. will offer uh, something that, that you know, uh, will strengthen our relationship, not only just for Tonga, but uh, that are of mutually uh, beneficial uh, to both our countries. The Chinese government is very focused on Tonga as well. Would you consider developing with Beijing the same sort of relations that the Solomon Islands has? Well, we, we have our own relationship with China. We, we have our own bilateral uh, program with China, and, and we're very happy with that uh, currently, Sarah. I mean, we, with the U.S., it, it's a little bit different. We're talking about uh, the T-Ports. We're talking about having a consular service here in Tonga and, and so forth. So... Uh, we, we do have different priorities with, with some of our, our development partners. What about the security relationship that the Solomon Islands has developed with China? Is that sort of relationship attractive to you? Well, I think that that's a decision made by Solomon Islands. We have our own relationship. It's a strong bargaining position, though, isn't it? Knowing how desperate the US is to counter Chinese influence. It puts the Solomon Islands in a strong position, doesn't it? Well, again, that's, that's Solomon Islands' uh, 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 bilateral uh, cooperation with the United States. I'd rather just talk about Tonga's uh, interests. I noticed that the Pacific Island Forum expressed concerns about the uh, nuclear submarine deal between the US, the UK and Australia. Are you concerned that AUKUS puts the region at peril? Well, the, the original concern was, uh, you know, information sharing, but... Uh, we believe we uh, we have addressed it uh, at the forum last year, and now we we know more about AUKUS, and and and, and that's that's what we wanted to actually have that more transparent relationship with uh, uh, the countries involved. Are you concerned the deal will fuel regional tension? Um, I don't believe so, but uh, it, it's something that we are watching closely. What exactly is it that you want from Anthony Blinken on his visit? Well, I mean, we, we appreciate the fact that after 50 years of uh, political 
that our relationship with the United States, we now we have uh, this embassy. So that, that's very much of interest to us. But we also like to actually help, well, not, not necessarily help, but to actually ask for help in terms of advocating for uh, some of the, the issues we're having with climate, uh, climate change and climate financing, uh, the, uh, some of the work we're actually doing in, uh, in, in, in uh, environment, renewable energy. So there, there are a lot of, of uh, let's just say, items that we would like to actually have some discussion with the secretary uh, uh, tomorrow. You said in a speech to the UN General Assembly that climate change is threatening your country's sense of nationhood. How is it doing that? Uh, it's, it's not only about the, the identity, it's about the actual existence of, of some of the Pacific Island countries, including Tonga. Uh, I mean, you know, when, 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 when uh, something like climate change, you know, we, we're having a, a, a more, uh, let's just say, stronger cyclone these days, I mean, let alone the other uh, natural disasters that we have, like the, the volcanic eruption and the tsunamis, you know, that compounded the whole, uh, you know, crisis that we're actually facing. And, and with crisis, we need actually resources to address some of it or, or to recover from it. So it, it's not really that simple that it's all about climate change, but there are other factors that actually... Uh, uh, make it a little bit more complex and make it a little bit harder uh, to actually recover from. Is Australia meeting its obligations to help countries like yours tackle climate change? Australia has been a very good partner. It's been a very good partner uh, in terms of uh, development, in terms of our recovery from uh, the, the disaster last year. Uh, and and they, they've been helping together with New Zealand the fact that, that we are having in the Pacific an issue with accessing uh, climate financing. Uh, we, we, I mean, most Pacific islands have been trying to actually get funding uh, from some of these uh, uh, global funds. Uh, but to date, a very small percentage of that fund uh, finds its way down here to the Pacific. So what we're asking is that if you actually meant uh, to provide funding for the Pacific, why don't you set up a funding mechanism just for the Pacific, you know, if it was meant to be for the Pacific. So uh, we were trying to actually see whether we can have regional mechanism like that so that the countries that would like to actually provide funding, especially about climate change uh, adaptation and mitigation, can actually put it there and then can be used uh, by the Pacific Island countries rather than actually going through all the the troubles that we're going through through trying to get funding from some of these global uh, funds like Green Climate Fund and, and so forth. The projections for the world holding warming to 1.5 degrees are pessimistic. What happens to Tonga if we don't hold that target? Sometimes we seem like a, a, a broken record, keep saying, you know, about 1.5. But end of the day, it's, it's about existence. Whether we're going to still be around in like 50 years or so. And that's why we keep saying what we're saying about keeping it 1.5 and doing all this stuff, oh, especially about medications, uh, given that uh, most of us in the Pacific don't contribute that much in, into this problem we have with climate change. Tongan Prime Minister Honourable Huakava Meiliku Siasi Sovaleni speaking to ABC's Sarah Ferguson there. 
Now, it's hoped that specific genetic characteristics of fish could be harnessed to avoid the effects of the temperature size rule exacerbated by warming ocean temperatures. The temperature size rule dictates that the warmer the water, the smaller the fish, with smaller fish known to produce fewer offspring. Scientists also believe that stronger individual fish might be isolated and bred in large numbers. Deakin University Associate Professor Timothy Clark told Nick Fogarty that it might provide a key to reinforcing fish populations. We did a review of all available literature in this area and we've discovered that there is quite a lot of variability there within a species uh, in terms of how quickly they grow. So you can take you can take a whole bunch of siblings, for example, that are all the same size and put them into a tank or uh, an environment and then a year later catch them all again and you'll notice that some of them are three or four times as big as others. So even though they've, they've got similar genetic background and they've been exposed to very similar environmental conditions, there's something, something there that causes um, some individuals to grow better than others. So we know that there's a lot of variability that exists there. Um, but our review also highlighted that really not much at all research has been done to understand whether that could apply to future environmental conditions. So can individuals be selected that will be, that will be somewhat tolerant um, to warmer temperatures and perhaps be able to step around this, this temperature size rule to a large degree or not, not be impacted as much as the average fish in the population. Now, our audience is obviously very dependent on the fisheries of the Pacific Ocean as participants and consumers. Uh, and given that some oceans of the world are warmer than others, is this shrinkage of fish especially prevalent in specific areas of the world from what you know? From what we know at the moment, it does seem very widespread. So as far as I know, um, no particular areas are, are more vulnerable to this than others, although it probably we need to overlay the forecasts for temperature increase on that. So you would expect that areas that are seeing warming greater than the global average might see more exacerbated effects uh, on fish sizes, given that the fish are adapted to those climate conditions. Um, if you push them further outside of what they're adapted to, then you would expect to see a, a greater impact. And if waters discontinue to warm at the rate that they are, what might this mean for fish and, and fisheries especially in the Pacific Ocean, and even what might it mean for the wider Pacific Ocean ecosystem? Yeah, for sure. We're, we're already seeing a lot, of, a lot of movement of different species. So environments that are beginning to get too warm for a particular species to exist there, their range will be moving poleward if they can, if they're not dependent on uh, particular natural structures like coral reef fish, for example, obviously need corals, um, so they can't really re relocate unless there's structure for them to move to. So we're definitely seeing yeah, re relocation um, of species that, are, that their environments are getting too warm. And then on the flip side of that, we are seeing species turn up in areas where they haven't been, and that can be seen as a benefit to humans because 
because in some environments that a particular important fishery species hasn't been found previously, we're starting to see that fisheries for that species is starting to be quite productive in areas where where the species hasn't been found before. So there will be some winners uh, in terms of it, it all depends on your perspective, obviously. Uh, so if you're a if you're a fisherman and interested in catching a, a species that isn't usually found in your neighbourhood, you might actually be able to uh, fish for that species in the future because it's it's relocating down to your area. So kingfish uh, historically haven't really been found down in Tasmania, um, but then in recent years they're turning up down there and there's some yeah potential for there to be a kingfish fishery down in Tasmania now, which didn't exist previously. Deakin University Associate Professor Timothy Clark is speaking to Nick Fogarty. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Remember, you can hear us this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. I will be back tomorrow at 6am PNG time again. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though, because news is next, followed by Jacob McGuire on Nisha Daily. Until next time, I'm Aggie DeBall. Thanks for your company here on Pacific Beat.